very glad to see you this morning. We are welcoming in the Christmas spirit by making it freezing in here. So I hope you're feeling the spirit. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 15. I'm very excited. This is that really great part of our story where they have fled from Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, now they are celebrating, and they're actually moving into the wilderness period of this story. And so I hope that you have looked ahead a little bit, um, because I think it will help this study today. A few announcements. Just a reminder, stmichael.org slash rbs. You can look at all of our old studies. You can listen to them wherever you listen to your podcasts. It would be a great thing to do over the break, because next week is our last study before the break, and then we are back on January 12th. And so if you are on our mailing list, our email list, then Bub will send that all out in writing so you can be confident not to show up when we're not having class and then when we are beginning again after the new year. And if you are not on our email list, especially those of you who are online, then I encourage you to send Bub a note. That's bmassey at stmichael.org or just go to stmichael.org slash rbs and you can click right there on the link and get on our list so that you are included and we'll have a new schedule for you very soon of what we will do in the spring. And in the spring, we're going to wrap up the book of Exodus and then we're going to jump into a bit of Leviticus and Numbers to kind of round out the whole story with the idea being by the end of the school year, we will reach the point at which Moses looks out over the promised land, even though he's not able to enter. And then Joshua takes the people in, and that's where this study will end. And then next year, we'll pick up the study of King David with all of the chronicles and kings and the way that the kingdom really put itself together. So one more week. Next week is our last study before Christmas, and I want to make sure that you all join us for Christmas. We've got what, something like nine or 11 services on Christmas Eve. Um, our Christmas Eve schedule is essentially what it was pre-pandemic, thank God. And so we want you to join us. We will be live streaming five services, I think, on Christmas Eve, five different styles. And so pick up an archangel or visit the website stmichael.org slash Christmas, and you can see that schedule. You can send it to friends. You can watch any of the live streams that you would like wherever you are, and it will be a wonderful celebration. And lastly, a week from Sunday, December 19th, at 5.30 p.m. is our Christmas Lessons and Carol service, and it is such a fantastic service. And so if you aren't going to be in town for Christmas, but maybe on, in town the Sunday before, or if you simply just love all those good carols, then join us live or online for that as well. Now let's... Oh, and lastly, I keep saying lastly. Is that the third lastly? Um, do you like our new parking lot? out on the west side. Those of you who have come during the week, we have cleared that lot. If you came and saw extra nice spaces in the lot closest to the building, we have a temporary parking lot on the soccer field. And so the church staff and the school staff are parking there now to keep the parking lot closest to the building free for all you good people who come during the week, either for studies or to volunteer. And so this is brand new this week. And so hopefully it's a shorter, easier trip into the building, especially when it gets cold, even though it may be colder in here than it is outside. <laughs> so, all right, let's start with a prayer and then we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you with grateful hearts today, grateful for the gift of this Advent season that helps us to focus on you and prepare to celebrate once again your inbreaking in the world through your son, Jesus. Be with each of us today. 
Help us to make space inside our hearts and minds that we can hear the way that you have worked in the world through faithful people in the past so that we can once again listen to your voice today and become your people, helping to extend your kingdom on earth right here through St. Michael and Dallas and beyond. Be with all those who need your healing touch today, those we hold in the silence of our hearts and those whose names are known to you alone. May they be surrounded by your presence and filled with your peace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump right in, chapter 15. Chapter 15, we're going to read just a couple verses, and then we're going to talk about this Song of Moses. Three sections today, the Songs of Moses and Miriam, History of Destruction, we're going to talk a bit just about destruction in general, and then Turning the Bitter Water into Sweet. So first section today, we're going to look at the songs of Moses and Miriam. Chapter 15, verse 1. Here we go. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And we'll pause right there. Context here. The Israelites have just gone through the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, whichever you would like to call it. And... Egypt's army has been decimated, destroyed. They walked across on dry land, the water came on top of the army, and presumably we might be able to imagine that Moses sings this song right there on the shore of the sea, looking at the carnage. Now this certainly could be days later, but I just I want to put us in that mindset because we often can make scripture very clean and very sterile, and this is not a sterile story. This is not a clean story. This is gruesome. And yet, even in this horrible moment, Moses sings this wonderful song of praise to God on behalf of the Israelites. And we, of course, know that songs of praise in the Bible are almost all collected in the book of Psalms. This is, in a sense, the first psalm of the Bible. Now, we don't consider this a psalm. It's a canticle, but that's okay. This is, in a sense, a song that explains a lot of where the Israelites are in their development. And we're going to kind of parse out the sections of this song in this first section. This is a true moment of worship. And Moses recounts the mighty deeds that God has done in delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh and his army. What we've already seen is reiterated, and I want to start or continue with verse 4. Moses says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So we'll pause there. 
I hope at this point, after years of study together, you are very aware that the Bible is often repetitive and redundant. You see this very often in the Psalms themselves. Not every Psalm does this, but many Psalms will actually have line by line redundancy. A line will say a thing, and then the line immediately after will just restate that same idea, and it will happen over and over and over for every single verse. In the Bible, somebody is trying to get a hold of somebody. Can you hear your phone ringing? It's still ringing. <laughs> All right. So, oh, a teacher thought she left her phone in here? Oh, that would be great. She may be calling herself, trying to find it. So, we'll just keep going. As you're able to look here, any phone, don't worry about it. When it rings again, find it. So, this is a moment here in Scripture where there is redundancy of the story. There are multiple reasons that this may happen. One of those reasons could simply be that the writer themselves is trying to emphasize a point and make that point clear. And as you all know, if two people recount the same idea, the recounting of that idea will be different. And how often do we say something like, in other words? That is helpful. When we are communicating, sometimes we like to say it a certain way, and then we might say, in other words, because we understand that saying the same idea in two different forms actually helps a person to round out their understanding of an idea. That could be what's happening here. It is also very possible that what we have here is a merger of multiple different storylines. And we see that in other places. That's why we have two creation stories and in other places around scripture where you essentially had two or three versions of the same story that a lot of people liked. And that oral tradition continued and continued for centuries. And when the story was finally written down, people liked both versions of that story. And so what we might see here in this scripture passage is we had one telling of the story and a different style telling of that story. And they just simply kept them both in this scripture, in this one chapter. And so that's helpful for us to just know so that we don't simply say, why are they repeating themselves? So let's continue with verse 11, because after they had experienced this tragedy, Moses affirmed that God was the true God. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders. As Moses goes through this poem, there is a very clear acknowledgement that this God, Yahweh, is God. Now we know in hindsight that all of these amazing things have happened over time, and so of course they would think that. But if we put ourselves in their shoes, remember that they spent 400 plus years in Egypt? Moses came on the scene, and even though Moses talked a big game, they weren't entirely sure that God was going to come through for them. And so even though God went through plague after plague after plague, took them out of Egypt itself, we know that at the shore, when they were hearing Pharaoh's army come charging toward them, they questioned whether God was going to actually deliver them. And so Moses here very, I guess, explicitly wants to point out that this one moment 
secures that God is the God. Egypt had their gods. There will certainly be other gods in Canaan and in Babylon and you name it. This is the one true God. Then Moses exalts God into his rightful place of authority, commemorating the personal relationship that he and the Israelites have with Yahweh. Look at verse 13. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That's very personal. This, this language that Moses is using in, the, in this song is one that is meant to really make personal the relationship. We often use the language of personal Lord and Savior, or you've heard me make fun of, you know, buddy Jesus and friend Jesus and that sort of stuff. We are comfortable with, or at least familiar with, the idea of God as something personal to us, connected to us. In history, that is not the common understanding of God. God is not friend. God is not buddy. God is not your walking partner. God is God, and God is scary and dangerous and distant and potentially aloof and uncaring. That's what we see in all of these major mythological traditions around the world. What Moses is understanding here at this moment is something much more personal. That personal understanding of God shapes all of the ways in which God's story is told. When we look back at the very beginning of Genesis, we see that God is walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. It's very personal. As we move forward, the understanding of Messiah is shaped into something very personal. It is a personal saving, not just a corporate saving. This is not something that happens to the big macro group of humans, but something that happens very personally to each one of us. And that carries on in the understanding of Messiah and then, of course, in the understanding of Jesus himself. Now, as the people were looking toward the future, because there's sort of a pivot moment here from what has happened to what will happen, it's important to note that there is some foreshadowing in Moses' song. Look at verse 14, 15, and 16. The peoples heard, they trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm they became still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. In those three verses, the writer of this story is foreshadowing what will happen. Now, believe me, a bunch of slaves getting caught in the river is not going to scare the people living in Canaan. And so what is happening here is not something that is happening at that moment, but rather something that will happen. And why do they think it will happen? Well, remember this was written centuries and centuries later. And so this has already happened. And this poem, this song of Moses, is being filled in by hindsight. So the people know what ends up happening. Now, just chronologically speaking, you've got more than 40 years before they actually cross into the promised land from this point in time. 
And so these Canaanites, Edomites, Philistines, they're not scared of the Israelites. It's a bunch of starving slaves out by the river. But they will be. And it may not be for decades. But that is what will end up happening in the arc of the story. And so as the storyteller writes Moses' song, he fits in those little components in order to essentially round out the whole idea of their exodus, of their salvation, that it is purposeful and connected to what will actually happen even decades later. Finally, we see that Miriam gets into the game. And so look at verse 20. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam's energy here is kind of infectious. And I can sort of imagine that Moses is a bit more proper, a bit more staid, and he's probably pronouncing something lovely. Maybe he's reading this poem. Maybe he's even singing or chanting this poem. And Miriam hears this and says, you know, that's pretty good. And thank you, boring Moses, for your poem. But I'm going to get some tambourines and me and the girls are going to go dance. And so they just create this party. And she sings the refrain of the song. And so I hope you see Miriam singing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. That's Moses' line. She's just repeating what Moses had in his song, but she takes it up a notch. She, in a sense, creates the celebration. Moses here has given this elegant, poetic, theological statement that's important. And Miriam brings the party. And so here they are on the shore of the Red Sea, celebrating the destruction of Egypt's army and their genuine freedom. As we noted last week, once they cross the water, they're essentially in free territory. The Sinai Peninsula was populated, but the Sinai Peninsula was not a, you might think of it as unincorporated Egypt. Nobody's doing anything out there. It's essentially barren, and it's not really worthy. When they crossed the water, they crossed out of incorporated Egypt and into unincorporated wilderness, because as we noted last week, the trade routes would have gone north around the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Going south into Sinai was, in a sense, hard. I mean, I, I hate to say it's a death wish, but in a sense, it's like, would you like to be dropped off randomly in New Mexico or Arizona and have to walk to find water? I mean, it's just, it's hard, and it's not something people do, and yet here they are going out into this wilderness, and they're celebrating because God has delivered them from their bondage, even though, and we're going to get to this in, later on in this chapter, just because one problem is solved does not mean all problems are solved. It's just one of the big problems has now been taken care of. All right. Thoughts or questions about that? Yeah. 
So the question is, why here is Miriam only referred to as Aaron's sister? There are a few answers to that question. Perhaps the most likely answer is that Aaron and Miriam are genuine siblings and Moses is somehow a brother in the air quote sense, like we are brothers and sisters in Christ kind of thing. We know at the beginning of Moses' story that the way the story is told, Moses is a biological brother to Miriam. The words that are used there make that clear. And so when Miriam follows along with Moses in the basket on the river, it is made explicit that they are actual brother and sister. Later on in this telling of the story, like in today's chapter, there is this interesting implication that Aaron and Miriam are siblings, but that Moses is not perhaps the same kind of sibling. And even though the language, you know, the kind of the fraternal language is used to describe Moses in relationship to Aaron and Miriam, it could be seen in the way that the words are tweaked and the sentence structure is used, the grammar of the sentences, that Moses was not perhaps biological in his relationship to Miriam and Aaron. And do you remember, it's probably a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, I discussed some of the oddities of Moses' story around having been raised in the court. How did he know these people? Why is his name so non-Israelite? And that his name is actually etymologically connected to name, Egyptian names like Ramses. Moses, Ramses, it's the same kind of etymological connection. And so some scholars have put forward that Moses actually was Egyptian and not Israelite. And that gave him the capacity, the know-how, the relationship to Pharaoh to actually do all the things that Exodus said he did. Eh, we have no real evidence of that, with the exception of his name. His name is weird. It, it, is, not, it is not a Hebrew name. I mean, today, Moses is for sure a Jewish name. But at that point in time, it's not really Hebrew rootedness. It's more connected to an Egyptian style of naming than a Hebrew style of naming. Could that be what's implied here? I don't know. The other answer is the storyteller is simply not as accurate as we would like them to be. This is kind of an unedited version of the story, if we're honest. The Hebrew is not as tight or as clean as it could be. We will see later on where there are pronouns that get flipped. And sometimes in, in the same sentence, there is first and third person. And it's strange. And so it could just be that it's kind of messy. And we see that in other books of the Bible. Paul was a very good writer. Luke was a brilliant writer. But you have some like Mark who did a very nice job, but there it's just not elegant. It's a little rough. It probably should have had a better editor. And perhaps this is really that, where who knows? Someone could have caught that and said, are you saying she's not Moses' sister? And then the writer may have said, oh, no, no, no. They were all siblings. I just, what, happened to mention Aaron? I don't know. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> you are so welcome.
Did I see a hand over here? No? Any other thoughts or questions? No. All right, then. Let's move on to section two, the history of destruction. So I know you all are kind of interested in this stuff. This is not, this section is going to be non-biblical. So you can kind of like hold, hold your finger in your Bible. We're going to get there in the third section. I wanted to take the opportunity to kind of pause and reflect on the historicity of this story. You all have asked in multiple different ways about my early comments this year around the historic nature of Moses, because we really have no historical evidence outside of the Bible that he existed. We have no historic evidence that the Israelites were actually in Egypt ever, that they were slaves of Egypt, that they built the cities. We really don't have historic evidence. And by don't have, what I mean is we've not discovered any yet. And so it could be out there under some sand in a cave, certainly. But we simply haven't seen it yet. However, we do have evidence of the Israelites being in Canaan. And it connects to Egypt in a way that I thought was most appropriate to bring up today. In the arc of this story, it is most likely that the Pharaoh who argues with and is defeated by Yahweh and Moses is Ramesses II. So that would be Ramesses the Great. Um, many scholars believe Ramesses the Great was the best pharaoh in the New Kingdom of Egypt period for a couple thousand years. Super powerful, ruled for decades, built huge cities. He is likely the pharaoh that is dealing with Moses in this story. Ramesses' son, Meneptuk, took over after Ramesses died. So Meneptah becomes Pharaoh after Ramesses. And there is a shtiel, which is kind of a big, it's like a plinth or something like that, where it's a big stone thing that tells stories about kings. And so we see these kinds of things in later Europe, things like the Arc de Triomphe and places like that, in a sense, are these big stone pieces that tell stories of what rulers and kings and emperors and whomever did. A stele is kind of an ancient world's version of this. And so obelisks would sometimes have these stories, that sort of stuff. A stele is a bit more like a really big headstone um, that you would put on a grave with lots of stuff written on it. A bit more narrative, typically, than pictorial. And so the, the Merneptah steel actually relates Egypt to the people of Israel. The Merneptah steel has 28 lines on it. The last three lines of the steel references Canaan and Israel. And I just thought I would read this to you because it's, it's interesting. Meneptah had a victory over the Libyans. So, I don't know if it's really worth drawing a picture, but we all, can I get a head nod? Like, we know where Libya is. Yes. Libya is not in Asia. Okay, no, we're not doing that. Um, okay, I'm, like, everyone's like, okay. Um, so, you've got Egypt in northeast Africa, and then you've got Libya next to it. And then south of Egypt, you've got some of those major empires like Ethiopia. And Ethiopia would be 
um, down in the Horn of Africa, in a sense. Um, and you all, we discussed the Red Sea the other day, and of course the Red Sea goes south on the west side of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula down to Djibouti and Somalia. Somalia is on the actual Horn of Africa. Y'all, yes, yes, nod, uh-huh, no? Okay. Um, it's okay. What'd you say, draw a map? Oh, come on, okay. Let's see. We can do a map. Okay. Cedric, is this in the screen? Yes, thank you. Okay, so remember we have kind of this curve and we've got a little bit of a peninsula right here and then you've got Okay, so this is the Mediterranean up here. So water, 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 water. This is water, water, water. Okay, for all of my geography fans out there, this is Egypt. You've got Libya over here. You've got Somalia here, Ethiopia here, Saudi Arabia here, Israel here, and here is Sinai. So the Sinai Peninsula is this little pizza slice that's right here between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. This canal here is one that you've heard of, the Suez Canal. So if you, you know, remember back when Britain had that kerfuffle with Egypt in the, what, 40s or 50s or something like that, um, Suez Canal is right here, and it is very likely that that is where the Israelites crossed over. So if we, last week, when we were talking about where did the Israelites come, they would have come here and would have crossed over somewhere in that northwestern point where the Suez Sea becomes the canal. And so it would not have been some, it would not have been miles of water. It would have been something relatively passable way up here in the, north, in the northwest. So the Suez Canal feeds down into the Red Sea. That's what this is. Red Sea is here. And then the water goes out down past Somalia. So, I mean, in recent years, we've heard, the last 20 years, right, we've heard of Somali pirates. Somalia has a lot of piracy because Somalia's sort of a skinny country that's got a ton of coastline. And so it's a seafaring nation, so to speak. And so piracy is a big thing for Somalia. Um, Libya is up here, and Egypt, all of this is to say that the Merneptah steel, Merneptah, the pharaoh that followed Ramesses, had a big victory over Libya. Egypt liked to have buffers around it. 
like any other nation. I mean, right now, what is happening in South or Southwest Russia? There's a bunch of troops piling up on the Ukrainian border. And why does Putin say the troops are piling up there? Because they're afraid that Ukraine may want to join NATO. And if Ukraine joins NATO, NATO could put missiles in Ukraine that could hit Moscow in a matter of minutes. And so they're saying existential threat is that NATO could pose to Russia a more dangerous threat if they were too close. And so in a sense, Russia is saying Ukraine is almost the safe zone. Like that needs to not be part of NATO. We're not going to go into Ukraine. Yeah, right. You know, I always think like Putin's like, nope, you know, we're not, we're not going to go into Ukraine just like last time. Um, but in a sense, their argument politically is we need a buffer. America has a very unique benefit of being flanked east and west by oceans and north and south by very strong allies. America does not really have any concept of the vulnerability of being next door to an enemy state. When you really think, Israel says this all the time, they've said it for decades, that the reason their military has to be so strong is because right there are nations that wish to destroy them, not across oceans. You know, we talk of China or Russia as being existential threats to us, but they're oceans away from us. And so at least there is some concept of warning prior to, you know, remember Cold War stuff, at least there was a warning system. If you're talking about your literal neighbor, where it's just a perceived line from here to there, there's effectively no warning. And so Egypt, ancient Egypt, valued having buffers around it. And so in a sense, their victory over Libya was a defensive buffer. Merneptah made that the point of that steel, but as almost a postscript to this steel, it references the land here that creates an eastern defensive buffer to the empire of Egypt. Does that all make sense? Yes. Okay. So now let's hear these lines from this steel, which is really the only non-biblical evidence that we have of Israel's relationship to Egypt at this period of time. I saw a hand back there. No, the Red Sea is not a river. Um, the Red Sea really is an inlet of the Indian Ocean. So it's not really running. Um, it, think of it almost like one of the Great Lakes. It doesn't necessarily run in a direction. I mean, yes, obviously all water goes down, um, but it is so large that it really isn't moving anywhere. It's much more a sea than a river. Whereas the Nile is draining into the Mediterranean, the Red Sea is a static body of water, much more like the Baltic Sea or the Black Sea or groups like that, or perhaps even the Gulf of Mexico. Gulf of Mexico is much larger, but in that sense, there are, there are weather patterns and 
movement of water, but it's not a flowing of water like you would think a river. Does that make sense? It's bigger than you think. Africa is bigger than you think. All of us grew up with really weird world maps that made Africa look like the size of Greenland. Are you all familiar? Have you seen maps that are actually made such that land mass relates to each other in the proper ratio? If you have not seen this, I highly encourage you to just Google it sometime. What, what I certainly didn't realize when I was a child is the world maps that you know, my teachers would you know, pull down the thing like you know, and those world maps, the equator was like two thirds down the page. And so that alone tells you, where is the equator? In the middle. That's like literally what equator means. And so when you look at a map and the equator is down here, then obviously everything south of the equator has been shrunk. It made sense, I guess, to do that because you had all of these Europeans who were trying to navigate the Atlantic and all the rest of the stuff was just kind of like Africa. Even though Africa is gigantic, it's huge. And so if you look at a, at a scale version of the world, then you see things like the Red Sea in particular is much bigger than we think because Africa is so much bigger than we think. It is not the size of Greenland by a long shot. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? Do you know I just have to take a moment. So I, one of my favorite scenes from the West Wing, do we have any West Wing fans in here? God, the West Wing was so good. I just, I, I should rewatch it, it was so great. Um, there is a, a great scene where they were discussing a new map that someone was proposing public schools use around the country that had the Antarctica on the top and the Arctic on the bottom. So in a sense, you had north going down and south going up because actually there is no up and down in space. And that we have central, we have just got used to North is at the top and the south is at the bottom, but actually north being at the top isn't a thing. Like north can be down, that's fine, um, because all it is is direction and magnets. And so they had an entire map. CJ was losing her mind in this conversation. She was freaking out. And I watched this episode and they referenced the map and I immediately went out and I bought one. And so in my office when I was a youth minister was this crazy map that had Africa and Australia and all that stuff up in the top half and North America and Europe and Asia down the bottom half, but all of the words were right side up. So it's not as if you took a map and turned it over. No, they took the picture and turned it over, but all the words were right side up. It was freaky, it was great. And the whole idea was don't assume that what you know is all there is, right? There are different ways of looking at even the literal world that can change your perception in meaningful ways. Okay, that was just my nerd moment. Okay, so back to the Merneptah steel. Like I said, 28 lines, the last three reference Israel. The princes are prostrate, saying peace. Not one is raising his head among the nine bows. Now that Tehenu, Libya, has come to ruin, Hadi is pacified. The Canaan 
has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome. Gezer has been captured. Yanoam is made non-existent. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. Huru is become a widow because of Egypt. And so here at the very end of this steel, Merneptah details the destruction that they have caused in some of these other lands. Libya, yes, Libya was the big fish, it was destroyed. But then Canaan has been plundered. Ashkelon and Gezer, they were two cities in the area of Canaan. You know them in Israel is laid waste, sea does not. Egypt, in some way, understands Israel as being one of those minor places. So it's not Ethiopia, it's not Libya, it's not Babylon, it's not that big but it's in a sense a second tier problem. And they have undercut and undermined Israel such that they now have a good positive defensive position in the region. What is interesting about this to me is that Israel really did exist at this point in time. How Israel related to Egypt may not be literally, historically, the way that Exodus tells the story, but that there was a relationship with Egypt is, in a sense, proven by some of these non-biblical histories. And so that's a good thing for us, because then the story that we see in the Bible can be a story that is really meant to emphasize the relationship that we have with God, not be a classroom textbook. And if we can take it out of that literal textbook category and instead put it into a category that is a bit more like poetry and art that points at truth and identity and belonging, then it does what I think the storytellers intended it to do, which is inspire, not just teach dates and places and names. I think we cheapen scripture when we make it a textbook rather than allowing it to be the kind of artful, inspirational text that it really should be. All right, that was really it. Any questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Bev? Is it this, Pam? Yes. What is your question? Okay. I, was, I just always wondered why they spent 40 years wandering around when they could have walked it in like... You know, oh, oh, I was lost with the Mary and Joseph. Yeah, I got on. Sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so the question is why did they wander? In the, why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so why did they wander around the wilderness? Why did they spend 40 years out there when they really could have just been far more efficient? Yes. That's your question. Okay. We actually haven't gotten to the why yet. There is the why. It is coming. And the why, is, here's, here's, the, here's the why. And then we're going to actually get to that part of Scripture in the spring. 
Essentially what happens here, we talked about the big macro arc. The Israelites are enslaved, they get freed out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai where they receive the Ten Commandments. That is the moment when God really formalizes this new relationship with the Israelites. Moses comes down, he's got the commandments, the people say yay, other things happen, doesn't happen quite that easily. And then they form the ark in order to hold the commandments. They move that through the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land. So actually in the story, they get on with it. So they receive the commandments, they create this new covenant, and then they pack their stuff up and they basically move slowly, but they move toward what is the promised land. And remember last week, I said they almost hook counterclockwise around into Jordan so that they come from Jordan into Israel. It would be more sensible for them to have just gone straight around the coast, but I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I had noted that the trade routes would have been well attended. And so Egypt, given their concern for both trade and security, would have had checkpoints and soldiers all along the way between Cairo and Jerusalem. If they had taken the, that route, they would have encountered Egyptian strength. So by going out into the wilderness, so to speak, which is really the desert, it was a harder trip in, on the one sense, they, they had to search for water, they had to take the food that God gave them, which we'll get to next week, but it was easier in the sense that they didn't experience any of Egypt's strength or resistance. And so in a sense, when they hook around to enter from Jordan across the Jordan River to Jericho, although the path has been longer, it's probably easier in the aggregate that they had gone through the wilderness. But your question is about the 40 years. When they get to that point, and we'll see this in the spring, Israel, in a sense, sends spies into the promised land to just scout. Because they're about to, people live here. People live in the promised land. And so what ultimately will happen is, I, mean, I hate to say it, it's a bloodbath. Taking over the promised land is not, is not negotiation. They don't show up and say, God's really strong and told us we're supposed to live here, so you have to leave. And everyone said, gosh, I really don't want to leave, but I guess, since God told you, no. The people who are living there defend to the death, and Israel just slaughters tribe after tribe after tribe. It's horrible. And we're actually not going to study that part because we stop with they're about to go into the promised land because I cannot do anything for you about the whole killing every person. Um, you can do that on your own. So <laughs> when they get to the promised land border the first time, the spies go in and they come back and 10 of the 12 spies say to Moses and the, other, and the leaders, they're big and they're strong and they're scary and we cannot possibly defeat them. Two, those say we can, not because we are strong, but because Yahweh is strong. And so Joshua and Caleb are the two that say essentially, 
Have you not been paying attention? Look at all the things that have happened to our benefit because God made this promise, and it's not something we did. God did that for us. It is God's faithfulness and it is God's strength that will actually carry us through. But because the others got scared and began to doubt God, God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And the reason for that 40 years is so that the entire adult generation that doubted God's strength would die. And then everyone who had essentially been young and not responsible for the lack of faithfulness would be adults. And then they would get another chance to be faithful and into the promised land. And the only two that get to live are Joshua and Caleb because they were faithful as the spies that went into the promised land in the first place. And that, well, that's not why Moses can't go in. That's a different detail. But Miriam dies, Aaron dies, Moses dies. They all die before going to the promised land. And there's a, a reason why Moses dies that we'll get to later. Good? Yes. Is there historic evidence of the Christmas story? Yes. Y'all, we are in Exodus. We are not in the New Testament, no. Um, so there are components of Jesus' birth narrative that, uh, no, is the answer. Um, we know from historic evidence, historians outside of biblical writers verify very clearly that Jesus of Nazareth existed. So we have multiple sources of historic evidence that discuss Jesus as a teacher, as a healer. So that Jesus essentially did the stuff he did is pretty much historic. There is no historic evidence outside the Bible of the infanticide that Herod killed the babies. Now, I will say that at that point in time, right now in Exodus, we're still, I hate to say we're still in the ancient world because, I mean, 2,000 years ago was still ancient world, but it's different. There were historians really tracking history, history 2,000 years ago in a more explicit sense. And so that these historians wrote about many, many things and didn't mention the king of Israel killing a bunch of babies is questionable because that seems as if that would have made the history books. So there are components of Jesus's birth story that we cannot verify. That Jesus was born is verifiable. We cannot verify that Jesus went to Egypt for example. But Jesus only went to Egypt in one of the two gospel narratives, not in the other. And so maybe he did and maybe he didn't, and maybe it doesn't matter um, because that's a detail that don't get lost in those details. Jesus actually lived. Herod's infanticide is not historically um, confirmed in other resources.
Any other questions? All right. We're going to just start with the end of chapter 15, not quite finish it, but we're going to wrap it up with 16 next week because it's all very similar. We are now at the point where there is a pivot away from Egypt and toward Sinai, essentially the wilderness. So look at verse 22. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it is called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So we'll pause there. We just had a big party. Remember, Miriam grabbed her tambourine, everyone started dancing, big celebration. I can just imagine everyone, let's just be honest, lots of people got drunk, they had to sleep it off. So now we're a few days later and Moses likely said to everybody, okay, party's over, we got to get on the road. And so Moses gets the people moving towards Sinai, but it's been a few days. They do not have clean water. They are in a desert. This is not wilderness like a forest. This is wilderness like a desert. And so water is hard to come by. Three days in, the people start whining and complaining about being thirsty. So I hope you see a pattern. The people feel really good that God did a nice thing until they forget and then they're inconvenienced and then they start complaining against Moses and God again. And it will happen over and over and over. And so Moses cries out to God, and God says, throw that wood into the water, and the water became sweet. Okay, that's weird. All I can say is, it's just a visual representation of God providing what the people need. Similar to touch your staff to the water and it becomes blood, this is throw that piece of wood in the water and it becomes sweet. Sweet water is, in the ancient world, essentially drinkable water. So don't think of it as literal sugar sweet. That's not really what that means. Sweet water is really just clean water that you can drink, not salt water, in a sense. Let's keep going. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where, they, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. That ends this chapter. And we'll keep going around bread, so they've got their water, now they're going to be hungry, and spoiler alert, they're going to whine and complain again. But God's going to deliver what they need as they move forward. The pattern here is what's important. Yes, God gave them water, but I want to emphasize verse 26. Let's really look at what God says here. 
If you listen carefully to the voice of God and do what is right in his sight, giving heed to his commandments and keeping his statutes, he will not bring disease upon you like he brought to the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Okay, this is very easy, clear. God's going to tell you what to do. And if you do it, all's good. Well, the inverse then is also true. If God tells you to do a thing and you don't do that thing, then you're in trouble. It is interesting here, just a little, a little bit more foreshadowing. I will not bring upon you any of the diseases I brought upon the Egyptians, but only if you do the thing I say. We will find out many, many times as we look through the wilderness that the Israelites don't do that right. And when they don't, they get all kinds of trouble that you could call plagues. I'm not positive that it references the word plague when that happens, but they're definitely just like the plagues. And Israel gets hurt. And then they turn back to God, and then God heals them. And I promise you, as we go through these wilderness stories, there will be stories about what God does to the people you have never heard unless you have read this entire thing, then there are some weird moments that we do not read in church, and it's kind of great. And so I'll leave that to you for now. Thank you all. One more week before Christmas. I'll see you next week. Bye.